Amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here this morning. We are in Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43, um, and, and uh, we're going to close out this chapter today. Uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Believe it or not, he's almost there. We've been studying his travel from Galilee to Jerusalem for, well, going on months uh, since about Luke chapter, uh, maybe even going on a year since about the end of chapter 9, we've been looking at Jesus traveling from his ministry in Galilee to Jerusalem. And he's just about arrived there. But before he does, we get to see two just magnificent, beautiful salvation stories. We, we've seen clearly in the text, Jesus' Jesus's theme as he's gone along teaching, stopping at place to place, going from town to town, village to village, speaking to all of these different people, a main theme of his teaching has been his coming kingdom. Like he's going to, he's establishing a kingdom. He's in, in, in process right now. The kingdom has come, but it is coming. And, and then how, helping people see how they enter into it. Or, or another way that it's been phrased is how they inherit eternal life. Or a third way it's been phrased in our text over these last several weeks is how we get saved. So he's, he's presenting the offer of salvation. He's presenting the possibility of salvation and then helping people see how they move into it. Or how they enter into salvation. And, and we've seen clearly in the text that this is not something we do. It's not something we can perform to accomplish. But salvation clearly is something we receive. It's a gift to us from God. Something he does and gives to us. And, and we receive it by faith. Regardless of lineage, gender, social status or standing, anything else, everyone is saved in the same way. We receive salvation from God through Jesus by faith. Now, before Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, at Jerusalem we're going to see these two salvation stories. This exact thing that we've been studying about is going to happen twice. One's going to happen in the process of Jesus uh, meeting a blind man, and one's going to happen in the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, probably one you're all familiar with. Uh, we'll deal with the blind man this week, Zacchaeus next week. Specifically, as Jesus deals with the blind man, we are going to see his faith and the vital nature of faith in the process of receiving salvation. So let's read, and then we'll walk through it, and I, I think it will become evident as we Go. So beginning in verse 35, the text says, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him. Jesus asks, What do you want me to do for you? King of heaven, establishing an eternal kingdom. I mean, steps down into this place where he positions him as a servant to a blind man. Don't miss this. This is huge. What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Everybody, every, 
Everybody who has ever lived or ever will live, everyone you know, places their faith in something. We all exercise faith. We don't exactly say it like that all the time because we typically reserve the word for faith for religious conversations. It doesn't have to be a Christian religion, like the Muslim faith, the the, the Hindu faith, those kind of things. We can, we can use that word, and we feel comfortable with the word faith tied to religious conversation. But the truth is, is that every one of us, regardless of who we are, regardless of, of what we believe, regard, it's always, we are always exercising faith. Everyone does it. In fact, there's a, there's a, a misunderstanding. Sometimes we talk about Christians being believers and non-Christians being unbelievers, That's really an inaccurate description. It's really an inaccurate expression of what's going on. They're all exercising faith. They're believing something different about the same thing. So even in relation to our Christian doctrines, as we would say we're believers, and we would say they're unbelievers in that doctrine, it doesn't mean that they don't believe something about that doctrine. They might believe it's whacked out. They might believe it's untrue. They might believe that you're crazy for even thinking that it might be true but they believe something about it. We all are exercising this kind of faith. Whether we realize it or not, that faith is expressed not just in our thoughts, but in our actions. It motivates us to movement. And just take something simple. You walked in this room this morning, and you picked a chair, and you sat down in it because you believed it would hold you. You didn't think, oh, I'm going to exercise faith to sit down in this chair. And I know this is simple. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a trite little illustration. It's a very simple little view of this. But the reality is if you walked in and you saw the bottom falling out or a chair, a leg missing off the chair, you wouldn't sit in it because you believed it would drop you, would believe it would drop you on the floor, and nobody wants that. You can believe in these chairs, but the chairs we had before, I'd be standing up here and every so often somebody's head would drop a little bit. And you know that that seat just broke on them. It was crazy. You can trust these chairs. You exercise faith by sitting in the chair. You got up this morning, went to the trouble of getting ready, struggled with family to get ready. Maybe if you got children, you, you had a larger struggle than some of us that aren't getting babies and small kids ready anymore. Maybe you had an argument with your spouse before you got out the door. But you exercised faith in coming here. You believed there would be something in it. There is something of value. Maybe, maybe you're a masochist and you just thought it would be bad for you and you like things that are bad for you. But you came here because you believed something about it. Everyone expresses faith. If you watch their actions, you can kind of see the things that they believe or where they place their faith. We believe food is necessary to, to live, so we eat it. Some people believe food will make you happy, so we overeat it. By and large, the culture we live in today has thrown off biblical teaching about marriage and sex. They believe that they have found a better way. They believe that there's a better way than what they believe to be outdated or invalid. And so they've developed their own sex ethic. You sleep with people to show your love for them, even though that love is fleeting and may change tomorrow, Or you sleep with them to receive something in yourself. You sleep with them to to demonstrate um, uh, uh, or or, or because they're the one. 
It's not really the way the Bible teaches a sex ethic. And even in their view of marriage, people don't wait until they're married before having sex anymore. They don't recognize marriage as a place that has been consecrated, has been especially established for the, uh, for, 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 for the expression of that level of intimacy. We live in a culture that's redefining marriage as fast as they can. As fast as they can. Not only are they redefining marriage, in many ways they're throwing off the biblical view of marriage because they found a better way. They're willing to accept a substitute and they'll cohabit, they'll live together increasingly in numbers. They are increasingly, people are just living together rather than marrying each other because they believe they found a better way, more relevant to life today. Even in our world where there are skeptics and atheists and agnostics, these are people expressing faith. I was recently, it's not recently, actually, it was about two or three years ago. Uh, there was a, it, it happens, I think, every other year. It's called Skepticon. It's one of the largest gatherings of skeptics and atheists that gather together to, to kind of prove or try to prove uh, that their lack of faith in God is, is sound and reasonable. <clears throat> So several of us went to this conference, uh, and we took turns. It was over the course of a couple of days, and we kind of took turns, and we went there to try to engage and share the gospel with people who were in attendance. And every conversation I ended up in, every one of them, demonstrated to me that why, the demonst- they, they demonstrated to me or tried to, to get me to believe with them that science proves or has better evidence for our origins and our just existence altogether, or why who we are and why we're here, those kind of things. Science, they believe, has better evidence than the Bible or the Christian faith or the Christian perspective. I would suggest that, that the Bible and science through the lens of the Bible is the most compelling case. But here's the thing. What ended up happening in every one of these conversations is that we came to a place where no one has a smoking gun. No one can prove beyond any shadow of a doubt why there's so many people that don't believe. No one can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that that, that creation is right, the biblical perspective is right, or that science is right. We all come to a place where we have to take a step of faith. Everyone is expressing faith. Every one of us. Regardless of our views, we all express faith. The great news that Jesus came preaching is that there is one faith that actually ends in salvation. And that's exactly what happened with this blind man. Everybody has faith in something. This is the main point, the, the, the main piece that I think Jesus is, is driving home as the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to, to uh, write this and record it for us today. It, it is that everybody has faith in something, but only the faith that's placed in Jesus is the faith that saves That's what's happening with this blind man. It's Jesus that's pointing out his faith. It's Jesus that's owning in on his faith. He's the one making this the main point, the main perspective. It is this saving faith that this blind man expressed that Jesus was going by that that ends up saved among all of those people. He's the one that says, he's the one that hears Jesus say, 
Your faith has saved you. The crowd, just think of the crowd. So, so here it is, this blind man sitting in the same place he always sits, doing the same thing he always does, in, in the same uh, city he's always in, and there's something different. He hears something different, and he begins to inquire. He begins to ask the question, well, what's going on? What's happening around us? So the, 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 the people around him, they're like, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is, is coming this way. Jesus of Nazareth is approaching Regardless of the fact that, that many of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people of the day, regardless of the fact that, that many of them had written Jesus off, regardless of the fact that many of them would have not trusted him as Messiah, everywhere he went, the people were surrounding him. They were following him. There's, there's any number of reasons for having done that. There's many things that they believed that, that, that led them to do that. But here Jesus is, he's, he's approaching or he's in the vicinity of, maybe more a, a little more literal translation is that he's in the vicinity of Jericho. And this crowd of people are around him and this blind man sitting on the side of the road whose life is, is bound up in begging, hears the crowd. He's like, what's going on? It's Jesus of Nazareth. And so in the middle of the crowd, the blind man begins to call out, begins to cry out, Son of David. He doesn't call him Jesus of Nazareth. This is important. We'll get to this later. He doesn't call him Jesus of Nazareth. He calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And immediately the people who are around him, hey, shh, be quiet. He's busy. He's on the way somewhere. We don't want to bother him. We, we Just let him go. You be quiet. They're kind of like, Kind of like the parents who rebuked, or, or I'm sorry, kind of like the disciples who rebuked the parents who were bringing their infants and little children to them, to Jesus. Kind of like those parents, or kind of like those disciples, these people around this blind man are rebuking him for calling out to Jesus. And Jesus, surprisingly and shockingly, really, he hears his cry. You see, the blind man didn't go quiet. The, 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 the blind man didn't listen to the, the people shushing him. The blind man knew, I need to get Jesus' attention. The, the blind man believed, if I can get his attention, if I can get close to him, I, he can help me. And so all the more, it says, he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. I think it's louder. I think it's constant. I think he just will not stop. And through the fray, through the crowd's noise, through everything that's going on, Jesus hears this one calling to him. And he says, hey, bring that man to me. And so now, here are these, here are these people standing around this blind man, shushing him, and all of a sudden, their, their tone changes. It's not be quiet. He's calling for you. See, Jesus didn't come. He didn't come for those who were well. He tells us over and over that he came to save those who were marginalized, who were, on the, who were on the fringes, who were dependent and powerless. Over and over he shows us that if anyone approaches him and, and, and says to him, hey, I've earned my way, you owe me. Or if anyone stands before him and acts if, if, as if they've done everything right to deserve God's blessing, we see it over and over, he sends them away. But when people approach Jesus at the point of need, dependency, we see him over and over invite them deeper. 
And so he comes to Jesus, and Jesus, the king of heaven, acts as a servant. What would you have me do for you? This conversation, I mean, it's, it's nothing anyone would have expected. It's not the way that we act in our world. It's not the way that we perceive things in our world. Jesus was the one in authority. Jesus was the one who went around teaching and, and, and preaching and who was called a rabbi. Jesus was the one who everyone assumed that at some level he was a prophet. They would have expected to hear Jesus say something like, what will you do for me? What are you going to do to deserve being with me. And Jesus says, what would you want me to do for you? Well, this blind man knows his need. I mean, he deals with it every day. He lives in, in darkness. At some level, the, 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 the way he asks or makes his request, at some level, it seems like at one time he could see. It's like he knew what he was missing. I want to recover my sight. I want to see again. And here he is. Looking, not, not, not looking, speaking. Not seeing. Speaking with the one he believes, the one he trusts can do something about it. <laughs> Have mercy on me. Be compassionate. Look, look at me in my need. Look at me in the, the depths of my despair. In the middle of my brokenness, in the depths of darkness, look at me and have compassion on me. And it's really, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, Luke says this in such a simple in plain way, Jesus, without any kind of Benny Hinn kind of theatrics, you know, like he's not like hitting people in the head or swinging his coat around, knocking them down with whatever spirit he claims to have. He's not shaking his hand at them as if power emanates from his hand. He just simply says, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately. Not, not in a process. Not, not over time. Immediately, he goes from not seeing to, 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 to seemingly having 20-20 right now. He's in darkness and suddenly light floods in. Whatever took place, whatever nerves had to be healed, whatever parts of his brain that were broken, whatever was wrong with his eyeballs, he, he, whatever is messed up, Jesus fixes in a second. Oh, it's so easy to just read past this, right? Like we come so numb to this kind of thing. The blind man who hadn't seen for who knows how long suddenly sees. He can see. He, he's now looking on the man who he's heard about. He's now seeing his face. 
He's seeing what the crowd looks like that he's been hearing. He's looking at the faces of people who would have walked by him in his blindness and not done anything for him. He's seeing the smells. He's seeing the things that emanate, the smells that he's, that he's sensed. He's seeing what makes the noises that he's heard. This man was blind and now he can see. That is shocking. But maybe even more shocking is what Jesus says is the cause. What he doesn't say is my power healed you. What he doesn't say is I just made you see. What he does say is your faith has made you well. You see, in this moment, we see, we see that faith pl- plays a vital, vital role in the life of a believer. We, 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 we have to see this. We have to understand it. There's a number of people surrounding Jesus. They were, uh, there was a crowd that had drawn this man's perspective, or drawn this man's attention. There was a crowd that had led this man to begin to ask the questions that he was asking, and, and yet he's the one. He is the one who he hears Jesus say, your faith has made you well. And, and, and just to dig a little bit deeper, just to go a little bit further so that you can see just how big this is. The word that Jesus chose when he said has made you well would be probably better translated as your faith has saved you. The Greek word is sozo. There's another word for, for made you well. There's another word for healed. It's not, we want to be careful with the text. I don't, I don't, I don't want to just say that this, that this word is never used in, in connection with physical healings. There's 54, I think it's like 54 times in the New Testament it's used. And, and there are some times where it's connected with physical healing. Or, or, or bringing somebody back from the brink of death. But, but in each of these cases, there seems to be something more happening. The, the, the woman who was bleeding, who, who's like, if I could just touch Jesus, if I could just get to touch the hem of his robe, and she's healed from 19, I think it's 19 years of suffering. And he says to her, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. We, we, we can see that there's more happening here because it's not just what happened in the moment. Yes, the man saw, but what was the reaction after his, his, his healing, after being given sight? What does he do? He follows Jesus. He leaves the, what, what, he leaves the place he's been. The same place he's been sitting, the same street he's been sitting on, the same city he's resided in. He leaves it to follow Jesus. He physically follows Jesus. Because of his faith. So because faith is so vital, because it's so intrinsic to the receiving of salvation, because Jesus points out this man's faith instead of his own power, we need to understand, what is this faith? What, what is it? How do, do, do I have it? Am I expressing a faith that saves? 
Every one of us are expressing faith. But am I expressing a faith that saves? In the balance of our time, there's four things I want you to see about faith that I think are expressed in this text, that we can see demonstrated in this text, that I'll, I'll, I'll try to build out a bigger view of uh, through other things. So first, saving faith. Saving faith receives the truth, agrees with the truth, and trusts the truth. There's a progression here. The reformers, so when the, when the reformers were, were beginning the Protestant Reformation, they're in the midst of this place where they're talking about justification is by faith alone through grace alone, right? Or by grace alone through faith alone. So, so they're, they're working through their, their doctrines as they're reforming. They're not, they're not starting something all new. The Reformation is not, not about starting a new religion. The Protestant Reformation is getting back to what was originally taught. It's reformation, it's reforming, not forming new. So they're trying to begin to, to understand this is, where, this is where the faith starts. This is where the doctrine starts. We have lost our way and we're trying to reform back to this place where we began losing our way. And as they did that, as they began to discuss justification by grace alone through faith alone, they recognized they needed to define or at least break out what faith is more than just say faith. Like you say faith and it doesn't mean a whole lot. Well, what constitutes faith? And so they recognize three, three elements. I didn't write them down. They're not on the screen. You're welcome to write them down. I can give them to you later. Uh, there's an, so I, I learned them orig, originally in Latin, and I don't know Latin, but that's just the way I heard them. So don't think I'm smart. I, I don't want you to think that. I'm just telling you what I've studied and learned. So notitia, it, it's talking about the knowledge or the content, what we know. Before you can trust something, before you can have faith in something, you, you have to have knowledge of it. You can't express faith in things you don't know about. If you don't have doctrine, if you don't have some, some content or some data to believe, you can't believe. You have to have the knowledge. You have to be taught the knowledge. It has to be given to you. And then the second piece is a census or it's an agreement where you have to agree with what you've been taught. There's a lot of people that hear things. I mean, think about it. We have information flowing at us all the time. We live in an information age. I mean, constantly, billboards on the side of the road, your speedometer in your car as you're driving, the, the gauges are giving you information, right? Your, your, your phone is popping off notifications. It's just what we deal with. We have information all around us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of it is true or that we'll believe every bit of it. Before you can say you have faith, before you can express faith, you have to have the knowledge, the content to know, and you have to be in agreement with it. You have to agree that it's actually true. And the third piece is fiducia, a dependence, a personal trust. To the point where, this is the point where it moves past the intellectual. It moves from your mind. Yes, okay, I have this knowledge. Yes, I agree it's true. And there's actually something happening in you where you begin to rely on it. Every one of us who express faith at some time will have our knowledge and our agreement with that knowledge tested. So back to this simple little chair illustration. You know, I know. You have faith in that chair because I don't see a bunch of people 
dancing around hoping it doesn't fall. You're resting in it. You're not guarding yourself. In fact, some of you are like way back in it. That's, that's, that's fiducia. It's personal reliance. That's dependence. Where you become dependent upon its power to hold you. Saving faith encompasses all three of these. But it's not just the faith that matters. Yes, we have to receive. Yes, we have to agree. Yes, we have to trust. But it can't just be anything. There's a lot of people that have faith in all kinds of things. Atheists, skeptics, uh, agnostics, they have faith in something. We must have faith in the truth. The object of our faith is what makes our faith able to save. Let me just show this to you just real quickly. Romans 1, 24 through 25. Paul is kind of building this history of man and our fall into sin and, and God's justified wrath against man. And he writes this, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because God gave us up in sin because of this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. What happened is they believed a lie. They trusted, they expressed faith in a lie. And because they did, they denied the truth. They quit believing the truth so that they could believe a lie. It's important what you believe. The object of your faith is vital to whether it is a saving faith or not. Paul demonstrates God's wrath, our condemnation is justified. Because rather than trusting God, we trusted a lie. And thankfully, the story doesn't end there. He goes on. And and you can follow this logic. You can follow this line through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, he comes to the place where he demonstrates that every one of us are sinful. Every one of us deserve condemnation. But he says in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law, just so you know, the law will always prove you a sinner. Right? Right? You try to obey it, and you try to prove yourself to God by it, it will prove you're a sinner who needs a Savior. But God's righteousness, his truth, his justice, the the purity, the the goodness, the, the rightness of God has been shown apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through what? Faith in Christ Jesus. It is the object of the faith that matters. We can't just say we have faith. What do we have faith in? Everyone has faith. Everyone expresses these three components of faith. But the object of your faith is what makes the difference between regular, everyday believing and faith that saves. The object of your faith is what matters between a condemning faith and a saving faith. Faith. The faith of the blind man. I mean, we, this is exactly what Jesus is honing in on. This is exactly what Jesus is exemplifying when he looks at him and he says, your faith has saved you. He believed that getting to the crowd, he trusted, he had faith that getting to Jesus was better than listening to the crowd. If he had listened to the crowd, he'd have been quiet and Jesus would have walked on. But he believed that if he could get to Jesus, he'd have a chance. 
He believed that if he cried out for mercy or if he sought mercy from Jesus, Jesus could offer it. He believed that Jesus was in a position of authority, a position of power in which he could help. And he saw himself as dependent. I just need to get to Jesus. When he addresses Jesus, he doesn't call him just Jesus of Nazareth as the rest of the crowd does. Son of David. That's a messianic title. Jesus is the promised Messiah. We studied that last week as Jesus talked about the prophets, all that the prophets had prophesied being fulfilled. Jesus is the promised Messiah. This man sees it. This blind man sees what no one else around Jesus sees. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then... When he addresses Jesus directly, he calls him Lord, Master, the one with authority, the one who can do what he chooses to do. I just want to recover my sight. This man's faith in who Jesus is is evident all over what he's doing. The object of this blind man's faith was Jesus. So when Jesus hears him in the midst of this crowd, he's the one that gets to hear Jesus say, your faith has saved you. Another thing we see in this man is that saving faith is not idle. It always moves us toward Jesus. Saving faith is not idle. It doesn't sit still. It always moves us toward Jesus. If we truly believe something, if we have faith in something, our actions will always follow. Our actions always follow our faith. That's just the way it works. You do what you do because you believe what you believe. There's nothing you've done in your life that you didn't have some motive or some faith that motivated you to that Action, most of the time, we're not sitting figuring this out. Because this is happening and we're just acting. We're not trying to dissect it in this way, but it's the truth. In fact, when you watch people's actions, you can more clearly discern what they believe than when you hear their words. It's just the truth. Oh, I believe in Jesus. And then you don't ever live like you believe in Jesus. Well, do you really believe in Jesus? See, look at this blind man. Everything he said, all the words that he was speaking, lined up with the actions that he put into practice. He believed Jesus could heal him, so he sought Jesus out. He disregarded the social expectation. I mean, this guy was second. I don't know exactly the social structure. Tax collectors like would have been at the very bottom. Maybe lepers and then blind people. But here's the thing is that they thought... In this culture, they thought, as they, as they looked at people who suffered from blindness, they thought they must have done something to deserve it. God's curse is on them. And that's why they were so, so low on the social status, on, in, in social status. When Jesus called him, he did exactly what Jesus said. Tell him to come. But the blind man didn't say, no, 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 I'm the blind guy. You're supposed to come to me. He obeyed. 
our faith, if it is placed in Jesus, will always move us closer to Jesus. If your faith is not leading you closer to Jesus, listen, if your faith is not leading you closer to Jesus, it is not saving faith. If your faith is not leading you to increasing levels of obedience, it is not saving faith. You, you, you may have the knowledge, and, and you may have, to some degree, the agreement, but you are not trusting. James actually calls this out. He, he talks about the demons who believe that there's one God, and they shudder. Without the personal trust piece, we're really no different than the demons. If your faith is not producing actions that honor Jesus as God, submit to Jesus as Lord, rely on Jesus as Savior, and follow Jesus as master, teacher, and example, then your faith is not a saving faith. And I'm not doing this to just get up in your business and make you feel bad. I'm doing this because I long for you to have a saving faith. Our God is a God who saves, who sent his son that we can be saved. Trust him. Don't trust in yourself. You cannot do it. He's the one with power. You're the one in the position of dependence. He's the one whose wrath is justified. You're the source of his wrath. But in Christ, that wrath can be satisfied. In Christ, his blessings and grace and mercy can flow. In Christ, we don't just see a a Savior. We, We can follow him and listen to his teaching and grow. We can follow him and and obey what he says to do. And we can walk in his example. As he walked, we can walk. If your faith is not leading you to this, your faith is not saving you. James made this point in his letter to the church, not only in reference to the demons, yes, but then he goes on and he summarizes the argument in these words. For as the body, James chapter 2 verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Dead faith is what every spiritually dead person expresses. They trust in things, in objects, in words, in thoughts that aren't true. They believe lies. And so their faith doesn't accomplish salvation. But if our faith is in Christ, it will lead us to do good works. A lot of people struggle, not, not a lot of people, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if a lot of people do. I know that Martin Luther did. Martin Luther, in the midst of the Protestant Reformation, wanted to get rid of James because he didn't like James' words about the interaction between faith and works. But when you read Paul, it's there too. Paul, say, one of the favorite verses for people who preach the gospel, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he talks about being saved by grace through faith that's not of yourself so that no one can boast. Follows it up immediately in the same breath in the very next verse with these words. For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. 
His grace that we've received by faith leads us to good works. And then you can follow that line of thinking all the way to the place where his, all of his statements of facts or all of his indicative statements is what it's termed as. All of these indicative statements turn imperative at the beginning of Ephesians 4 where he actually begins to command us to live a certain way. And he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk like a Christian. Walk like one whose faith is in Christ. Walk in the way that he intends you to walk. Your faith, my faith in Jesus, if placed in Christ, will lead us to follow him, obey him, listen to him, love him, worship him, honor him, devote ourselves to him, commit ourselves more fully, always growing and seeing him more fully as Lord and Master and Savior. That is the work. That, that's what faith will do. This is a work we don't do to get saved. It's a work we do because we have been saved by a faith that's not directed at ourselves, not directed at anything else, directed at Jesus. So saving faith knows the truth, agrees with the truth, and trusts the truth. Saving faith is not idle. It always moves you closer to Jesus. And third, saving faith is not the source of power, but the conduit through which we receive salvation. Jesus said it real clearly to this guy. Like, your faith has saved you. We know that's true, because Jesus said it, right? So it's not, I don't want us to argue with Jesus. In fact, that's probably a bad place, bad practice. I don't commend it. But in context, we need to understand what's going on. It, he didn't say his faith was the power. In fact, in all of his teaching leading up to this moment, he's demonstrated no one has the power but him. Over and over, he's demonstrated that, that, that you must come to him, not with a power of your own, but, but humbling yourself under his power to extend mercy, his ability to save, his ability to give eternal life. It's like a light switch. The light switch doesn't make the power available. Just try it. When the lights go out, when the power's off, go flip the switch. You can flip it 100 times. If there's no electricity in the, in the wire, there's no light going to light in the light bulb. The switch doesn't give you power. It just closes a path so that the power can flow. There's, th there's hundreds probably. Who knows how many people are following Jesus as he's approaching and walking through Jericho. There's no telling. This is a big city. And he's walking through. There's no telling how many people are there. And there's one we know of. One in particular in all of these people. He says, your faith has saved you. I don't know the faith or the object of faith that all those other people had. I don't know what they were trusting in. But we know that the object of this one man, the faith of this one man, enabled him to receive the power of salvation. It closed the switch and the power flowed. And this man who was blind could now see. This man who was dead would now live. 
The truth is, faith is the, the one human expression. The one human expression that we can exercise is it causes us to be completely dependent upon something else. That's why it's so vital. See, as we express faith in Jesus, we're admitting our own dependency, our own defenselessness, our own powerlessness. As, as we express our faith in Jesus, we are confessing that we are sinners in need of a Savior. As we express our faith in Jesus, we are, we, we are simply just agreeing with him that we are unable to change our position in the world and trusting that he is able, trusting that he can do it, trusting that, that he has the power. And so that's what's happening, and that's what this man does. He expresses his faith in the Savior. And the truth is that, that brings us to this last piece. As he does, as his faith is directed at Jesus, he receives an eternal reward that he gets to rejoice in right then. Now, I want to be careful here because we are not prosperity gospel people, right? Every blind man that trusts in Jesus will not be made to physically see. Every person who is poor that trusts in Jesus will not receive the riches of this world. Every sick person that trusts in Jesus for salvation will not necessarily be made physically well. But when we trust in Christ, our spiritual death is replaced with spiritual life. We live forever. The kingdom that he has come to establish. The kingdom that when he returns, he will consummate. In all of its perfected glory, a, a world with no pain, a world where tears are wiped away, where death ha it's, has lost its sting, where death has no power. In that kingdom, in the presence of our Savior, everyone who trusts in Christ right now, Everyone who trusts in Christ in this present moment will be given eternal life to live in his presence, to live under his blessing, to live in with him, walking with him, seeing him, hearing him. I mean, just imagine standing on the beach in heaven behind the Savior, watching the waves come in. I'm not really a beach person, but for some of you, it's already awe-inspiring. Just imagine standing there with the one who said, water, you stop here. Land, you rise up here. For me, it would be walking in the midst and among the Rocky Mountains. I don't know what they'll look like in heaven. But if they look that good today, <laughs> man, what will they look like then? The majesty and the awesomeness and the power of our God. And getting to enjoy it. Walking next to the God who created it. Who pressed down in places and pulled up on others. So that the mountains would rise up. Man, I long for that day. Oh, we'll enjoy it forever and ever and ever. But that joy doesn't wait for the day he returns. We get to walk with him right now. We get to know the God who saves right now. 
We get to hear his words of blessing now. You have been chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. Grace has been lavished over you like like milk gravy flowing over the top of a biscuit. Tell me that don't sound good. I mean, like nothing is not, I mean, it's all covered up with goodness. This, oh gosh, this is what we enjoy now. It won't always be easy, right? I, I want to draw a little bit of conjecture here just as we kind of come to a close. This man got to see Jesus' face. The one who said, recover your sight, he saw him. And then he left his place on the side of the street and he followed him. Last week, we talked about what Jesus knew was waiting for him in Jerusalem. The man that saw the face of the one who healed him might likely have been there to see him arrested. And to see him hung on a cross and to watch him die. It's not always going to be easy. But it's always going to be filled with the joy of knowing our Savior has saved us. And and it is going to be filled with the hope that our Savior is coming to save us. Everybody expresses faith. Everybody has faith in something. But the faith placed in Jesus will save you. What are you believing? What are you trusting in? Put it down. Walk away from it. Cry out to Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. Let's pray. Father God, we are so blessed to know your grace, to receive your mercy. How good are you to us? Would you move on your people today? For those who have trusted for some time, will you help us trust more fully in our unbelief? We believe, but help us in our unbelief. Father, for those, even those that potentially have sat under religious teaching their whole life but have never really trusted the one the teaching points to. If they're here today, Father, would you open their eyes and give them faith to believe. In fact, we don't do this often. I just With your heads bowed and your eyes closed and just thinking on this text, If you have never trusted the Savior, it's it's pretty straightforward. You just have to believe the truth. You have the knowledge, agree with it, and begin to trust it. Father, I would ask, Spirit, I would ask, We all need this. Move and refine and sanctify those who are yours and justify those who are not yet yours. 
I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.